Math, science, and logic can explain a lot, but not everything about how music works. The strange thing, though, is that great music almost always has a perfect logic to it. How is that possible? Stay tuned. First, this. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars, and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com. Enjoy the show. The logic of great music defies logic. It makes me think of a kind of saying that scientists have, physicists have, people working in the natural sciences, about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in nature. Like, everything just seems to add up, except dark matter. Dark matter doesn't seem to add up. Or quantum gravity. That doesn't add up. But my point is, in music, if you listen to great music of any kind, if you listen to Bach, for example, I've been listening to uh, the complete solo keyboard works of Bach as played by Glenn Gould, really the greatest Bachist ever. Maybe better than Bach at playing Bach. Who knows? What's striking in his playing and in the music is just like, this is defies logic. It's so logical, and yet you can't really quantify it. So one of the striking things about music is it is both a kind of perfect mathematical language of sound while being impossible to add up, in a sense. The unreasonable effectiveness of music goes beyond mathematics. So scientists are thrilled to tell us about this with regard to the universe. But what they miss is the deeper reality of the mystery underneath all the logic. You know what I mean? I don't. I started playing a theme, and there was no way I knew that I was going to end. Wasn't in the plans, I just kind of went with the idea, but it added up.
What is going on? Themes interacting, conflicting, agreeing, playing off of each other. How does that work out? Does it work out? Is it a mystery? Or can we ultimately analyze great music and say, this is exactly what happens? Well, to a certain extent, that's exactly what you have to do when you're studying, learning music. Whether it's a Bach fugue, a Beethoven symphony, a John Coltrane solo, a George Harrison song. I'm just kind of randomly picking out names here. But I have actually analyzed all of those things and figured out how the hell does this work? For example, I said George Harrison song because in an adult music theory class, that is music theory that's only safe for mature adults, a couple of years ago, I did an analysis of something by George Harrison, something in the way she moves. You know it. that little motif that introduces the song and then later gets us into the bridge. By changing one note. Anyway, the thing about it was the perfect logic of this amazing tune. This highly emotional little song that just adds up everywhere. I remember teaching this class and just even though I had already kind of in my head done the analysis and the way I teach is I barely prepare. I hope none of my students are hearing this, but I'll I'll come up with a tune. I'll think about it on the drive down to teach and and then I do the analysis in real time and find out, oh my God, this thing is like everything comes together. That's another song, come together. That's the first song on the the. Uh, Abbey Road album. That adds up too. So there I am in my adult theory class teaching a session on something which I had thought about on the drive down and I thought I understood everything about it but there was something I didn't understand and I didn't understand it until I started teaching and started to see there was a grander larger unification within this tune that I hadn't noticed. That that opening little guitar lick that both opens the tune at the beginning and then in the middle, going up one extra note, and then at the end where it's brought back in reverse. So that simple little motif built on four notes, a to- the motif itself is a total of six notes, but four different notes. I realized that the entire tune flowed out of that single motif. In the same way that Beethoven would build his symphonies or his sonatas out of the smallest motifs, the obvious example being from which he builds an entire four-movement symphony. And I realized what Harrison did was So those, the direction of the tune itself is now (laughs) 
Sure, there are other notes in between, but the general anchor of that melody are those four same four notes. Goes away from it. This part here, it's a variation on those four notes starting lower, but in the bass. Same motif moved down, and then he gets back to it. After the second verse, he, that's where the first clear change comes. So that gets us into the bridge, and the bridge itself has a kind of variation on those four notes, moving, expanding out further in the bass. And then, as I said at the end, he reverses the pattern. He does the version from the bridge into A major and then takes us back home. So he effectively built the entire tune out of that motif. Now, the question I have in the back of my mind right now is, how did this happen? Did he come up with the guitar motif first and then consciously or unconsciously build the tune out of that motif? Or did he do the reverse? Did he have the tune and then use the guitar riff as a kind of way of connecting all the parts? I don't know. What I do know is I went back recently and listened to, there's a uh, super deluxe version of Abbey Road that you could hear online on the streaming services, and I'm sure buy it on CD if you know what those are. There are several demos and alternate takes of a lot of the tunes, and there is a studio demo of this this song, something. One thing I noticed right away is he didn't have that special ending where he does, does the theme twice in its both shape. It's not on there. So he, either he or somebody else, maybe George Martin in the booth, said, well, you know, George, why don't we try uh, the uh, doing the second version at the end, going into the bridge, then coming right back? Or if George figured it out himself. Personally, I want George to have figured it out himself. I picture George as the kind of quiet, mercurial beetle in the background. There's the affable McCartney the angry, darker Lennon, and then there's Ringo, who is just the drummer. Sorry, drummers. And then there's Harrison, off in a corner, trying to stay away from that weird vibe between Paul and John, doing his own thing, working it out. So my ideal is he worked it out himself. But for all I know, McCartney may have suggested that change at the end. I don't know. One thing I do know is however it happened, the confluence of Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and George Martin. And I don't want to take anything away from Ringo because, in fact, he played the songs instead of the drums. It wasn't about, look at me, I'm the drummer. He played the perfect parts for those songs that held them together. But however it happened... You hear so much of this kind of thing in the Beatles, in their mid to late music, how everything is, adds up so perfectly. That's why it's lasted. That's why it's considered classic. So there's this incredible symmetry, incredible sense of logic to this highly emotional tune that uh, I believe Frank Sinatra called the perfect love song. And I think Sinatra covered it, didn't he? Go look it up. Anyway, 
It's it's like the beginning reflects the middle, and the middle works out like in a series of cascading circles as you throw a rock into the water, and it all comes back to the beginning, and the end is the beginning, and the beginning is the end, and the middle, and this sounds like another Beatles song. I am a walrus. I am you, and you are me, and we are... So this kind of thing appears in music of all types, whether it's songs, vocal music, or instrumental music. It's it's there, and you can sit there like I did in this class and analyze it and see, well, this is here, and this is referring back to this, and this is going here, and blah, 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 ad infinitum, really ad infinitum, because the deeper you go, it's like physics. You can keep going down layers of molecules to atoms to subatomic particles, quarks, and if you believe in strings, superstrings, there's at the very bottom there's just one thing. String theory has never been proven. But what I like about it is it does finally get down to the way perhaps all of these elements it's it's possible for a song like something or a Bach fugue for all the elements to work together in this logic that defies logic. Perhaps the way that works is at the very bottom, when you get right down to it, it's just one thing. It's a single vibrating string that has many faces. Or perhaps not. That's never been proven and may never be proven. But that unity at the heart of everything is perhaps a thing that quantifies all the mysteries in music and other things. So there, I've answered the question. I don't need to do the rest of this episode, I guess. Damn. So perhaps there is more to say about this. Because even as the logic defies logic, one of the strangest things for me about this and in music in general is that something can sound inevitable, like something by, well, that's good. Something, the tune, can sound inevitable, but also something in general. A piece of music can sound inevitable and yet go a completely different direction. So you heard that little improvisation that referred obliquely to something. (laughs) We're going to have to change the name of the song. In the Way She Moves. And it made me think of something else. 
it made me think of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It always gets back to that guy. How people for years, people like Leonard Bernstein and whoever, have spoken about this music as sounding perfectly inevitable, like it had to be that way and it couldn't be any other way, that you can't change a note. Well, this is dubious idea, but part of why something sounds inevitable if it's written well enough, and Beethoven's Fifth and something are written well enough, to say the least. Part of the reason they're inevitable sounding is, A, you've heard it that way. So the guitar solo, George Harrison's guitar solo... It's hard to unhear that, right? Because that's the way it was recorded. If it were recorded on another day and say George got more sleep or less sleep or ate a bagel as opposed to rice cakes. Did they have rice cakes back in, what, 68? It may have come out completely differently and still sounded the same. I mean, still sounded inevitable. So a part of inevitability is familiarity, right? But another part of it is that underlying structure where all these parts, if you tap into the force of music, the quantum reality of music, it's going to add up. If you don't, it's not going to add up and it's going to basically suck. Those are your options. Follow the thread of the force of music and it will add up if you have the proper technique to pull it off or don't and you'll you'll write stupid music or improvise or I've either spoken about this before in a podcast episode or I've just spoken to people about it and it doesn't matter you could say it again and again and it will come out differently just like a piece of music that you write so for example say Beethoven who was rather notorious in his uh, sketching out of themes. He had sketchbooks. He would work through something like the fate knocking at the door theme of the Fifth Symphony or knocking at heaven's door or whatever. No, that's, that's uh, Bob Dylan. As opposed to... have now conflated Bob Dylan and Beethoven. It just goes to show you that there's a unity at the bottom of everything. So say Beethoven 
after all these many years of working out his themes for the Fifth Symphony. And then he was very meticulous about writing them. Uh, He would go through a process. He'd sketch it out, not in full score form, maybe in two parts, the bass and the melody, so to speak, which is how actually most songwriters, composers work, except like, you know, serialists and minimalists. Okay, forget them. He would come up with this kind of bare sketch where the tune is kind of worked out, and then he would work that out so everything flowed, the narrative structure flowed, and then he would score it for full orchestra in this case, right? And that was a long, laborious process, although at a certain point when he started writing, it could go very fast. Or maybe I'm thinking of Brahms. I don't know. Whatever. Composers have their different methods to get to the same point. And some will do a sketch first, some will just go right to score or just record in modern terms. So say somewhere along the way, Beethoven made a change in the narrative structure or even the theme itself. Say the theme instead of going, which is this, these two descending thirds. Say he went... Now it all of a sudden becomes a different path. Okay, clearly he wouldn't have done that. That wasn't the harmonic rhythmic language of his time, and he's not just going to like transport himself to 2020. But my point being that he could have, for whatever reason, including what he ate that morning, if it was fish instead of mutton stew, he could have changed the theme and then or change some aspect of the narrative, and then in the end we would have heard recorded the only way to record back then, which was to notate on paper. We would have had a completely different Fifth Symphony, which Leonard Bernstein sometime in 1960-something would have said, this is inevitable. The music just couldn't be any other way. Well, in a sense, he's right, because it couldn't be any other way because that's the way it ended up. It stopped. Beethoven finished the work 
if for no other reason than he had to get it out there in the marketplace, get it published, get it performed. And then, like everybody else, he died. So he did not go back to reworking it or, say, recording it with alternate take with, say, lived 150 years and was part of the jazz movement. And he recorded it with bass and drums and a saxophonist. And then it came out. It was still Beethoven's fifth. It still had those themes, but, you know, it went... Would it be any less inevitable? Probably not, because this is Beethoven. He was so great that he could make it work. Or maybe it was Coltrane taking those themes. Or George Harrison, no. My point is this logic that defies logic is ultimately both a mystery and not a mystery. It's a mystery in the sense that all of this perfection seems to be beyond the ability of the human mind to conceive. It's one of the things about great music is that as a language, as I've spoken about before, it's not something that we understand in the same way that we understand spoken or written language. At least the average person can't say this chord is that. Now, musicians, of course, know that this chord is C minor 7th. But what does C minor 7th even mean? Well, it means something to us. But there's a deeper meaning that seems to be beyond comprehension. Sure, it's a chord built of a minor 3rd, a major 3rd, and then another minor 3rd. And it's we call it minor 7th because the triad is minor and the 7th is minor. And so there are these reasons. But what is it actually? It's just a chunk of sound that has a name so we can communicate as musicians with each other. Tell the guitarist to play a C minor 7th right here, as opposed to a C major 7th. But what is it in the sense that, you know, we can call a rock, the word itself may be an arbitrary sound, rock, but we see a very hard, lifeless form as a rock. Now, you could say that what is a rock, really, that's not only an arbitrary sound for that item, but the item itself, the physical item, ultimately is something that we don't understand. We understand the atomic, the atoms that are very close together, making that rock solid as opposed to, say, gas or plasma. But we don't understand in normal day-to-day life what it really is. But still, we can look at it and say rock. And sure, a musician can look at a, or listen to a chord and say it's this or that. But that has no actual meaning in real life. So that's part of the mystery, the unexplainable, unquantifiable mystery of music. There are these, the elements of it, most people don't understand how they're working together. How it comes together so that a song like Something or a symphony like the C minor Beethoven's fifth, how it seems to work unreasonably well. It seems to be, as I said, too much for a single human to conceive of. But part of the problem for the lay listener is 
the misperception that all of this just comes together in one go. So as I spoke about, Beethoven had his sketchbooks. He worked out these themes and then he worked out the musical narrative with a melody and a bass line usually. And over time, it came together. The same could be said of George Harrison's tune. More than likely, there were multiple revisions. They may have happened on tape, which is what was used back then, as opposed to written out. The likelihood is it took some time, whether it was one hour, three weeks, or whatever, to get that all to work together. So the misconception is that it all, it's unreasonable because how could somebody put something together this beautiful and almost mathematically perfect in one go? Well, they don't normally. Revision is a big part of the process. And that would be true even, I would say, in the case of improvisation. It's not merely that if you listen to, say, the outtakes of a Miles Davis album, one thing that will be clear is that often they didn't get it right on the first go. The solos were less focused. They were still feeling their way around what was happening. So there's the improvisation and the performance in the moment, but then the improvisations take place over a long period of time in a larger sense, too, because it took each of those soloists, Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, Miles, Red Garland, it took them years to develop their own personal improvisational language to get to the point where they could then screw it up on the first take but make it perfect on the next. So none of those things happened solely in the moment. There was multiple revisions going on both within that recording session and all the revisions personally that each player was going through over years of practicing, performing, practicing again, not being happy with it, we're used to hearing the end result, whether it's a written work like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, a song that is recorded on multi-track like something, or a partly written, partly improvised performance like the Milestones album. We are used to the end result, and that seems unreasonably perfect. Like, how did this happen? Well, it didn't just happen. That's the point. So that's the unexplainable in this sense is more explainable by virtue of looking at it in the larger picture of all the mistakes that went into it, all the revisions, all the retakes, and so on, the overdubs. I don't know how many times George Harrison overdubbed that guitar solo. Did he do it on the spot? There's probably documentary evidence one way or the other how he recorded that beautiful guitar solo. Okay, so... There's that, that idea of fixing, fixing in the mix, overdubs, retakes, sketching. But then there is the deeper level that I talked about earlier of how is this possible, this unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in nature and perfection in great music. And that gets right back to the idea that underlying all of these things, the chords, the motivic material, the forms, song forms, the compositional forms, and so on. Underlying all that are simplicities. 
in the same way that physicists seek to find the underlying simplicity of nature, our musicians are able to make deep connections by drilling down into the fundamental character of sound moving through time. So something like this. You can interpret it a lot of different ways, but fundamentally it's just... A minor third going up, minor third going down, and then this chromatic movement up. It's four notes, and four notes is not a big deal in itself. You could do a lot with four notes. Also four notes. That's where a lot of the mystery can be explained, in the sense that to Beethoven or to any knowledgeable musician... It's just an interval of a third. And then he does the same thing going down a step. And that's the musical language. It, you break it down into its literally smallest parts, and that's what he did. That's what he was a genius at. His genius was, was to take the smallest elements and be able to build huge structures with them, expanding them out in many varied ways to tell a story. So the technique of writing music, of composing and improvising music, ultimately has these very simple principles holding it together. And now it becomes a little clearer as to what is happening. It's magic, but that magic is based on logic, musical logic, which may or may not be the same as physical logic in the, in the way that physicists speak of it. Maybe, probably, on a deeper level, it is. These things add up because they obey some fundamental law of sound. That part of it may be ultimately unexplainable. Can a computer, given the right inputs, the right algorithms, write a piece of music as great as Beethoven's Fifth or something? Or generate a performance as great as the classic Miles group on Milestones? Probably not, unless the computer was programmed by a composer, songwriter, improviser as great as any of those, which is not going to happen for the simple reason that nobody has that kind of time. And in truth, a lot of these musical decisions can't be quantified. As much as I just said they can... be interesting to build a song on those two things. Ultimately, some of these decisions can't be quantified simply because they have to do with even deeper quantities.
quantifications of the soul. Can the soul be quantified? 